Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Later, we will conduct a question and answer session, and instructions will follow at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchdown telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. At this time, I'd like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you very much, Stephanie, and I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Connect Education Workshop, Managing Symptoms and Treatment Side Effects of Multiple Myeloma. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort between many cancer organizations, and we also have the International Myeloma Foundation as one of our collaborating organizations, and it really is because of all of our various cancer organizations that are working with us, and actually all of your interest in the program today, that we have over 511 participants on the call today, and you come from all of the United States, and we also have international participants from Canada, France, India, the Netherlands, and United Kingdom. So it really is a credit to all of you that you've chosen to spend the next hour with us. Now today's program, and actually this is part of a, a three-part series on multiple myeloma, on living with multiple myeloma. So today's program was made possible by an educational donation provided by Amgen and supported by an educational grant from Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC. And I really want to thank them for their support, not only of today's program, but of this entire series and this really initiative to, to really shine a light on the, on the treatment and management of multiple myeloma. Um, now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Nupur Rajay. Dr. Rajay is Associate Professor, Department of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. She is the Director, Center for Multiple Myeloma, Division of Hematology and Oncology, Massachusetts General Hospital. And Dr. Rajay is going to present an overview of the symptoms and treatment side effects of multiple myeloma. She's going to talk about reducing bone complications. She's going to also offer tips to manage and cope with pain, discomfort, and treatment-induced neuropathy and guidelines for dental care during your treatment. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. Rajay. Thank you, Carolyn. It is a real pleasure to be on this call today, and I'd like to thank all the listeners for taking the time to participate. As Carolyn has already mentioned, what I hope to do over the next uh, few minutes is talk first about the symptoms from the disease itself, that is symptoms from the multiple myeloma itself, and then obviously talk a lot about uh, what we end up doing with some of the treatments we use for the myeloma and some of the side effects that you experience when you receive these treatments, and then look at strategies to try and manage with some of these symptoms from the disease as well as with the side effects from the treatments that we offer you. We'll talk about uh, pain control. We'll talk a little bit about neuropathy. We'll talk about bone disease, which tends to affect quite a lot of patients with myeloma. And finally, we'll also talk about uh, dental care during your treatment uh, for this disease. So as you all are aware, multiple myeloma is a cancer of the bone marrow, and it is caused by myeloma cells or plasma cells. Now these plasma cells are a type of a white blood cell or an immune cell which lives in your bone marrow. And normally their function is to produce antibodies called immunoglobulins. And these antibodies help prevent infection in, in the body. Now normally most plasma cells make up less than five out of every hundred cells in your bone marrow. But for reasons not completely understood by all of us, Plasma cells can grow out of control, which is where they are referred to as myeloma cells, and you end up with myeloma cells filling up the bone, bone marrow space. 
Over time, they collect and they can form tumors and lesions, which can result in bone disease. And that's where you get the name multiple myeloma because of these multiple lesions. Symptoms from myeloma may be a consequence of a whole bunch of things. These myeloma cells produce proteins, and these proteins are detected both in the blood and the urine because of marrow infiltration. So you can get symptoms from the presence of the protein. Oftentimes you can have kidney problems. You can get symptoms from bone pain because of infiltration of the different bone areas. You can have effects on your blood counts because the marrow space is occupied where you end up with anemia and sometimes can end up with low blood counts. Other features which are common could be an increase in calcium levels. This is almost always because of your bones being affected from the myeloma. We talked already about the kidney problems which can happen because of that excess amount of protein in the blood as well as the urine and the propensity towards infection. Now all of these symptoms can be corrected if you treat the underlying myeloma. I think for this disease, we've been very, very fortunate, and over the last several years, we've seen an advent or a huge advance in terms of all of the different treatment approaches that we have available for patients with multiple myeloma. We have lots and lots of new drugs, and we're not going to be talking about treatment specifically, but what we have done with all of these different FDA-approved drugs, which we at least have 12 different combinations of, so the progress in multiple myeloma has really been unprecedented over the last uh, several years. What we tend to do is combine all of these and use them in patients, and the goal is to try and control um, uh, all of these symptoms which you can experience from um, the multiple myeloma. With a combination of all of these different drugs, we are able to control the disease in almost all patients with myeloma. So close to 100% of myeloma patients with some combination or another will have response to their treatment and will have control of the disease. The commonly used drugs that we use for the treatment of myeloma right now include immunomodulatory drugs like thalidomide, like lenalidomide, and pomalidomide. We also use a different class of drugs called proteasome inhibitors, which you are familiar with, like bortezomib or carfilzomib. And now we have a new oral one, which is called ixazomib or ninlaro. Along with all of these, we have a whole host of monoclonal antibodies, which have been recently approved, such as daratumumab, as well as elotuzumab. And all of these, when used in combination, are able to control a lot of the disease symptoms that I have talked about uh, just now. Having said this, bone disease does affect the majority of multiple myeloma patients, and if untreated, if the myeloma is left untreated, you can, it can result in complications and it can really impact the quality of a person's life. What we have been doing over the last 10, 15 years now is using drugs called bisphosphonates for the treatment of multiple myeloma-related bone disease. The drugs which are commonly used for the treatment of bone disease include permidronate, or zoledronic acid. These are intravenous infusions, which are generally given once a month initially, and then we space them out some more. And what these drugs do is help control bone disease and help prevent 
further damage of these bones. They help bone strength, uh, strengthen the bones and prevent problems such as bone pain, fractures, sometimes need for radiation, as well as sometimes need for surgical fixation. What we have shown in the recent past is when we've used drugs like zoledronic acid, not only have we shown benefit in terms of these bone-related complications in patients with multiple myeloma, but we've also seen that if you treat bone disease appropriately, patients with multiple myeloma live a lot longer. A lot of times, though, patients with myeloma can have lesions which affect their vertebral body or their spine, and that can, in fact, be quite debilitating. Over the course of a patient's lifetime, you will end up with compression fractures of the vertebral bodies, and there are certain local measures that we can use in situations, and these are called vertebral augmentation procedures so that we tend to use procedures such as vertebroplasty or kyphoplasty, and different institutions, different um, specialists who do these. It could be an orthopedic surgeon. At our institution, we use an interventional radiologist. These are outpatient procedures where we put in a needle in the spine, inject some cement in that area, and that really helps with pain control as well as can result in an improvement in height as well. Occasionally, when you have bone problems, you do need radiation treatment, but I would argue that one should minimize how much radiation treatment you need for bone disease. And sometimes, if you have a fracture in some of the long bones, like the femur bone in your thigh area, you might need surgical fixation of this. Now, excitingly, we've had a lot of excitement in terms of treatment for myeloma. I've talked about some of those images, the protosome inhibitors, different monoclonal antibodies, but even in the bone world now, in addition to drugs like the bisphosphonates, we're using drugs called bone anabolic agents. These are a whole new class of drugs. They're very early in clinical development, but what they are hopeful, our hope is that these drugs are going to be able to heal all of these bone lesions that you see uh, with multiple myeloma. Another drug which is commonly used or still is in clinical trials for bone disease in multiple myeloma is a new monoclonal antibody. This drug is called denosumab. It's a monoclonal antibody against a protein called rank ligand. It's approved for a lot of other diseases like breast cancer and prostate cancer. But for myeloma, we've just about finished doing a study with nearly 1,700 patients in it. And if that study looks promising, we are going to be able to use this monoclonal antibody for treatment of bone disease. And it's a monoclonal antibody which can be given as a subcutaneous shot once a month and can be quite uh, useful in the treatment of uh, bone disease. Shifting gears a little bit now, we talk a little bit about symptom and pain management, and then we can talk about quality of life issues as well. Um, and a lot of these issues around symptom control is a good news story, really. It's a reflection of how chronic this disease has become, and because it's become as chronic as it has, you know, symptom control has taken a center stage. It is, however, critically important that you engage your uh, clinical team and communicate all of these symptoms to your team of nurses, of doctors, of your caregivers so that we can pay special attention to this and really address these 
um, uh, symptoms as well. Another long-term toxicity that we've seen specifically with bone-targeted agents is osteonecrosis of the jaw. Osteonecrosis of the jaw typically occurs in people who undergo dental uh, evaluation and usually dental extraction, and what usually occurs is a non-healing at the site of that dental extraction. Um, the key to this is to try and avoid dental extractions if you can. And the other thing is keep the mouth as clean as possible. And we recommend that uh, uh, a lot of chlorhexidine uh, washes, if it ever does get infected, would treat proactively with uh, antibiotics. Any, uh, fatigue is a fairly common symptom, not just from the myeloma because of the anemia that I talked about earlier, but fatigue is a very underreported symptom from patients, and a lot of that fatigue can happen with all of the drugs that we use for multiple myeloma. So this is something I think you need to talk about, and I know Dr. O'Donnell in her next section is going to address this and tell you and talk to you about strategies of how to deal with this. If it is from anemia, from the myeloma, we sometimes use drugs like erythropoietin or EPO, and they can help increase your uh, hemoglobins, and that also helps you feel better. As far as kidney dysfunction from myeloma, the key for you all to remember is keeping yourselves well hydrated is always a good idea. Avoiding certain drugs like non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs are very important because they can in fact impact the kidneys adversely. And we talked earlier about the risk of infections in patients with multiple myeloma, so that if you end up with things like fevers, coughs, colds, make sure you let your treating physicians know, because in general, we have a low threshold to start you on antibiotics. So although all of the drugs that I've mentioned to you also are very good at controlling your myeloma, and in general, most of them are well tolerated. There are certain side effects which are associated with some of these. Now, when you think about the imids, so drugs like the thalidomide, drugs like lenalidomide and pomalidomide, one of the things in addition to low blood counts is the fact that these drugs can, in fact, predispose you to blood clots. So most times, if you're on an imid like the ones I've just mentioned, our recommendation is for you to be on aspirin. And in some situations, in certain patients, we would also recommend that you be on a blood thinner like low molecular weight heparin or Coumadin. The other part which I mentioned to you is blood counts. So blood counts should always be checked when you're on these medications. And should they get low, you are at a risk of infection. And sometimes we've used growth factors to help prevent uh, very low blood counts. As far as the next class of drugs, which is the proteasome inhibitors, we've used bortezomib. And bortezomib, those of you been exposed to it. Some of you may have experienced a side effect of neuropathy associated with that. That's becoming much less now because we are using bortezomib once a week. We are using it subcutaneously, but nonetheless, it is a possibility, and this is something you should report to your treating physician, to your care team, because they will be able to modify the dose of the bortezomib, and there are other 
uh, proteasome inhibitors which are less toxic to the nerves like the oral proteasome inhibitor called exazomib which can be used instead if you really have neuropathy or we also have carfilzomib. We do ask you to do a few things with uh, if you end up with neuropathy, so vitamin supplementation is a good idea, B6, B12. Uh, generally, exercise is always a good idea, and I'm sure Dr. O'Donnell is going to tell you more about this as well. In terms of the other proteasome inhibitor, which is carfilzomib, this is the intravenous proteasome inhibitor, and it can certainly... Uh, cause um, doesn't cause neuropathy but can cause other problems and some for, uh, patients have noted uh, fluid overload with carfilzomib and if that happens I think it's again important to let your treating physician know if you have some shortness of breath and we've used uh, drugs to take away fluid from you like a diuretic and uh, uh, we've also used strategies to give you the carfilzomib infusion a little bit uh, uh, slowly. Um, I think with all of these side effects it's extremely important to keep up with physical therapy and I know we're going to talk a little bit more about it. Exercise also always helps to mitigate some of these side effects and eating uh, keeping active and eating a healthy diet are all good uh, uh, things to keep in mind. And finally, I would like to highlight the fact that given that we have come such a long way, you know, as far as your treatment for myeloma is concerned, if there is a clinic, if the, you know, check in with your treating uh, team, but also check in with uh, a, a center of um, expertise close to you so that there are the clinical trials which may be right for you, those are things you should uh, consider. Uh, always know that you're not going through your treatment for myeloma alone. It's a team sport. It's a team effort. Uh, you have your care team, and you are kind of at the center of it. So keep everybody informed specifically with side effects so that we can help you manage all of this much better. I'm going to stop here, Carolyn, so that uh, you can segue into your next segment. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. Rajay. That was really, really excellent and very comprehensive and I think um, a lot of excellent tips for everyone to kind of um, take hold of. And um, so thank you. And there will be questions for you during the Q&A, so thank you. Our next speaker is Dr. Elizabeth O'Donnell. Dr. O'Donnell is instructor, Harvard Medical School, Department of Hematology and Oncology, Massachusetts General Hospital Cancer Center. Dr. O'Donnell is going to present practical tips to control fatigue and infection, physical activity concerns and tips, and discussing quality of life concerns with your healthcare team. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to Dr. O'Donnell. Thank you, Carolyn, and thank you for the opportunity to talk about one of the most important topics for all cancer patients, symptoms and treatment side effects. Today I'll be discussing fatigue, managing infection risk, physical activity, and quality of life within cancer care. Risk of infection can be of great concern to patients. By definition, multiple myeloma is a disease of the immune system, as Dr. Rajay discussed. The plasma cells, which are the cancer cells in myeloma, are responsible for producing antibodies or immunoglobulins, which are used by our immune system as one of the important ways that we fight infections. Both by the nature of the disease itself and by the treatments that we use, people with myeloma are vulnerable to infection, particularly upper respiratory infections. That said, this does not mean that you have to live in a bubble once you have this diagnosis. Like our American government, our body has checks and balances, and we have other ways by which we fight infection that are not impaired by the disease. With the exception of the period of time immediately following stem cell transplant, 
The goal for myeloma patients is to live a normal life without fear of infections. Good hand hygiene is important for everyone, as is avoiding sick contacts or sick people. With myeloma, you can travel on airplanes, go to concerts, enjoy your grandchildren, and live your life. If you do become sick, it is important to communicate this to your care team sooner rather than later. The drugs used to treat myeloma, specifically the immunomodulatory drug class, which includes lenalidomide, pomalidomide, and thalidomide, can alter your immune system's ability to respond to sickness, and these drugs may need to be held during acute illnesses. Early and judicious use of antibiotics can also be beneficial for myeloma patients. The take-home message here is that you should live your life but employ common sense and good hand hygiene to minimize any unnecessary risk of infection. Moving on, over the past 10 years, the availability of effective new drugs with acceptable toxicity have been modified the traditional treatment paradigms for multiple myeloma, resulting in an improvement in the quality and the duration of life. With these improvements in survival, the chronic and long-term effects of multiple myeloma therapy have become increasingly important. Both the disease itself, characterized by anemia, bone disease, kidney dysfunction, and susceptibility to infection, and the toxicity profile of the therapies used to treat it, contribute to a broad range of potentially debilitating side effects. Fatigue is both one of the most common symptoms of myeloma and one of the most common side effects of the treatment. The only thing proven to help cancer-related fatigue is exercise. While it may be the last thing you want to do when you are feeling poorly or seem counterintuitive, it is the one thing that may be able to help you. I will talk in much greater detail about exercise in just a moment. So right now I'd like to focus on mitigating treatment-related fatigue particularly the side effects of dexamethasone, which is a steroid used in most myeloma regimen. Almost everyone tuning in to the call this today has been treated with dexamethasone as part of his or her treatment for myeloma. So the medication is an important part of our armamentarium. Like all good things, it comes at a cost and is often the most challenging drug to take in terms of side effects. On a good day, the medicine makes you feel up and energized, but it can more often cause, it can often cause emotional lability and insomnia. Some regimens employ dexamethasone only once weekly, while others can call for it up to four times weekly. Perturbed sleep four nights a week or even one night a week can create or exacerbate fatigue. Here are some tips to mitigate this issue. Number one, try to take your steroids or your dexamethasone first thing in the morning on the days that you need to take it. Try not to wait until you get into a clinic unless you have to. Try to minimize caffeine consumption when taking steroids. Ask your doctor or your healthcare provider to give you sleep medications if you are finding that you cannot sleep while taking dexamethasone. It is not weak or wrong to do so. It is the same as managing any other treatment-related side effect. Try to go to sleep at the same time every night and avoid late afternoon naps. Good sleep hygiene can ensure consistent rest, which can help mitigate treatment-related fatigue. As I mentioned before, both the disease of myeloma and the treatments for the disease can cause a broad range of physical effects. The long-term effects of this treatment, specifically high-dose dexamethasone, on physical function and quality of life have not been well examined. For example, patients receiving high-dose steroids for at least three months, already, patients getting treated for myeloma for at least three months or for as many as nine months, 
We know that prolonged exposure to steroids is associated with development of loss of lean muscle mass, osteoporosis, weight gain, high blood sugars, high cholesterol, fluid retention, and mood disorders. Combined with deconditioning from physical inactivity and high levels of systemic inflammation from the underlying disease process, myeloma patients are particularly vulnerable to loss of physical function and specifically lean muscle loss. There was a recent study done of cardiopulmonary exercise testing to assess the effect of autologous stem cell transplant for myeloma on patients' cardiopulmonary fitness. They looked at patients up to 17 months after transplant, and what they found was that when compared to age and sex-predicted norms, myeloma patients' peak oxygen consumption was about 40% less than their comparators. These results suggest that post-transplant, younger patients have marked and significant reductions in measures of physical functioning that extend well beyond that initial period of therapy. To date, no group has studied physical function outcomes in the transplant-ineligible or elderly population receiving combinations of proteasome inhibitors and immunomodulatory drugs, nor has any group studied the shorter long-term effects of these treatments on muscle mass or muscle strength. It is likely that all myeloma patients experience loss of fitness, muscle mass, and strength as a result of their treatment. So what do we do about this? Large-scale studies have shown that physical activity and exercise are associated with significant improvements in physical and psychological parameters in patients with most cancer types. Though very few studies have been done in the myeloma population, the small studies that have been done suggest that exercise is not only safe but beneficial in patients with myeloma. So what can you do? The American College of Sports Medicine and the American Cancer Society recommend 150 minutes of moderate-intensity exercise plus two sessions of strength exercises per week. So what is moderate-intensity exercise? It is activity done at a level of exertion where you could still talk but not sing. For myeloma patients, one of the great concerns is obviously bone integrity and risk of fracture. For my patients who have known bone disease, I generally recommend non-weight-bearing activities like the stationary bike, the elliptical trainer, or water exercises. I recommend against lifting anything greater than 20 pounds and suggest exercise bands for strength exercises. Not everyone who would like to exercise and improve physical wellness knows how to do so. If this applies to you, know that your care providers can refer you to physical therapy and insurance will generally cover your visits to address cancer-related fatigue and deconditioning. A physical therapist can devise an individualized plan that is tailored to your specific needs and begin your training process in a safe and supervised environment. Physical therapy is an underutilized resource for cancer patients. Other safe and beneficial activities include walking, yoga, and tai chi. In terms of strength exercises, simple things like wall squats are safe and can be done within your own home. And there are a large number of apps for handheld devices that are available that can give you exercise programs. The 7-Minute app is one that I recommend to my patients for strength exercises. I believe that most people have 7 minutes in their day to focus on strength. One of the other barriers to exercise can be having a place to do it. We, I live in Boston where the climate is not hospitable for the majority of the months of the year. There are programs that exist, such as the Live Strong program, that offer free YMCA memberships to cancer patients and survivors that include the use of a personal trainer once weekly for 12 weeks. 
You can look on the Live Strong webpage to see if there's a nearby YMCA offering this program, but also inquire within your community and your hospital about similar opportunities. If you have, are someone who has never exercised, has chest pain or shortness of breath with exertion, a history of heart or lung disease, please consult your doctor before embarking on an exercise program. Finally, 150 minutes per week or 30 minutes per day, five days a week, is a great goal, but it may not be the right starting place for you. It is a big jump to go from zero to 30 minutes of moderate intensity exercise. I recommend starting slowly, maybe 10 minutes per day or 15 minutes every other day, in building up your endurance day by day and week by week. I tell my new patients that treatment for myeloma is a marathon, not a sprint, and physical wellness should be viewed in that light as well. You need to set out at a pace that you can sustain and build upon. If you go out too hard and too fast, you can risk injury and overdoing it. It is also important to choose activities that you enjoy. You'll be more inclined to do it. Set short and long-term goals. Try exercising with a friend or training partner or join an exercise group or class. Take advantage of technology. Almost everyone these days has a smartphone, a Fitbit, or an Apple Watch. 10,000 steps per day is the recommended goal. But again, you don't have to start there. Try to build towards it. As important as exercise is, not everyone will be able to do it. And there's another way to look at this. Rather than focusing on adding activity and exercise, focus on decreasing inactivity. Continue and return to normal daily activities as quickly as possible. Limit time spent sitting. For example, no more than two hours of TV watching per day. These are simple things that you can do that will help. For example, since most people use cell phones, if you are on the phone, take the call standing up. Walk around the room. If you are at work and need to go to the bathroom, go to a bathroom on another floor and take the stairs to get there. In general, take the stairs when and wherever you can. While we do not have good data for the effects of exercise on multiple myeloma outcomes, we do know very well that exercise improves quality of life across the board in patients with cancer. The final topic I will discuss is how to discuss quality of life concerns with your care team. When we are in our doctor's office, it can often seem that taking care of treatment business is at the forefront of our discussions. How are the labs looking? How is the disease responding? We're so focus on trying to deliver the best disease response outcome as providers, that we don't often make time for the important discussions about quality of life. In 2016, multiple myeloma is a chronic illness. Though not curable, most patients will live many, many years with the disease. And with our new treatment paradigm of continuous maintenance therapy, we'll be on treatment throughout. As we have discussed, though better than other types of cancers, our treatments do have side effects and require not infrequent monitoring, even when on maintenance. The long-term quality of life burden of continuous therapy for myeloma has not been well studied. It seems intuitive that this is something that would impact our patients and needs to be part of our ongoing discussions and our clinic visits. As the patients and caregivers, you should not hesitate to voice your feelings about quality of life as you go through your myeloma therapy. As I said before, myeloma therapy is a marathon, not a sprint, and you have to be able to meet and sustain the pace of the demand of the side and side effects being put upon you. We as providers can make dose adjustments and schedule adjustments as we go through treatment to make the disease and its treatment more manageable for you. If you do not voice your feelings, we don't know what they are and we cannot address them. I personally feel that quality of life is critical in all cancer therapy. 
I encourage patients to go on vacations and live the life they want to live. It is important for the spirit to do things that make you happy and energize you so that you're able to sustain the demands of therapy. Patients may fear that by voicing concerns about quality of life during treatment that providers may change, make changes that could compromise the efficacy of treatment. It is important that you must be well physically and emotionally to absorb years and years of therapy, so both a long and short-term vision is critical to your overall wellness while living with myeloma. I thank you for this opportunity to speak about these important topics, and I encourage everyone listening to this call to be kind to yourself, to take care of yourself physically and emotionally for long-term wellness. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much, Dr. O'Connell. That was really wonderful, and actually a lot of really helpful um, tips and, and language that people can incorporate into their you know, day-to-day coping with multiple myeloma, and I think um, it was really helpful to hear this uh, emphasis um, by you and Dr. Roger on just the emphasis on quality of life and really carving out a life that's important for each of the participants on our call today and for people living with multiple myeloma. So very helpful, and I'm sure there'll be questions here during the Q&A um, um, in terms of this. So thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Ms. Diana Bairden. Ms. Bairden is a dietitian. She is supervisor, clinical dietitian, University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Ms. Bairden is going to address nutrition and hydration concerns and tips, which is an important area, in, uh, of course, in, in coping with um, side effects of multi-myeloma. So I'm going to turn this program over to, and actually to just living with multi-myeloma as well, and in general, and just living in general. So I'm going to turn this program over to Ms. Bairden. Thank you, Carolyn. I'm so happy to be part of this presentation today. Um, I'm so excited also to hear all the great information that's been shared thus far. And um, I'd like to just add a little bit more to what has been shared and um, hopefully um, clear up some questions that patients often have regarding nutrition during cancer care. Um, A good way to look at nutrition is it's the fuel for your body. And what you put in and how um, that fuel is utilized is what we want patients to understand more. Um, A plant-based diet is actually recommended before, during, and after cancer care. And a plant-based diet has where two-thirds of your plate come from a plant-based food. That's including a whole grain, fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, healthy fats. and then the other third from a lean protein, um, more often um, fish and um, white poultry, and sometimes beans if you want to have a full vegetarian meal, and less often um, beef, pork, or lamb. The reason why um, we are encouraging a plant-based diet for a number of different reasons. Um, we want to eat for the nutrition of the food, and a big question um, that comes up oftentimes with cancer patients is, I need to get my blood counts up. What should I do to do to improve that with my diet? And there isn't a magic answer, but we do know that if we look at food from a functional standpoint, that can really help um, at least start to answer some of the questions. A plant-based diet, um, as I described earlier, really brings in um, our vitamins, minerals, nutrients, our healthy fats, our lean proteins, all of the components which are very important um, throughout life, and there's nothing um, specific necessarily during cancer care other than special issues that may come up with you. So modifying the diet based on your um, disease process and how your body responds to that. Um, Some examples that we heard earlier are diabetes, um, you know, fatigue, all of those sorts of um, issues that people can have, renal issues. 
Um, sometimes your diet will have to be modified a little bit based on um, any health concerns that may come up along the way. But nevertheless, um, walking into this, understanding how to eat healthfully and beneficially for your body is the real key. Um, we also heard about fatigue. And, um, again, nutrition is the fuel um, for your body. And so if we look at our healthy fats and reducing inflammation, such as um, our cold water fish, those are things like salmon, tuna, halibut, herring. Um, we can also get healthy fats from our plant-based foods like avocados and some of our nuts and seeds and our oils. And um, those can help reduce inflammation, which is which is what we heard a little bit earlier, inflammation is one of those concerns that we have going through, through treatment. And um, feeding our body the nutrients it needs is the best way to, um, to serve it the most um, of the components that it needs. Another thing, um, as we look at um, hydration, oftentimes when fatigue is part of the picture, um, we are not drinking enough. We're sleeping more, um, maybe snacking a little bit, but we're trying to eat oftentimes and we're just not getting enough fluid in. And hydration is very important. Dehydration can cause headaches, nausea, um, increased fatigue, dizziness. There's a lot of um, uh, power in hydration. And so getting enough fluid in each day is important. You can talk with your dietitian or healthcare provider about what foods are considered fluid. Um, a fluid is something that is liquid at room temperature. So it doesn't always mean you have to drink water. I have a lot of patients who feel waterlogged or, or they just don't care for the taste anymore. And so there's a lot of options out there, but talking with your team about what's appropriate for you is important. Um, again, I mentioned about side effect management, um, and we heard a little bit earlier, you know, talking with your healthcare team is important to connect with them so they can help you as soon as possible manage those side effects. Um, same goes with your diet. If there's something that's happening digestive-wise, tolerance-wise, there's a change in your situation based on your treatment, reach out to them and ask them, is there anything I need to think about with my diet? Um, it's been a pleasure um, talking with you all today, and I'm going to hand this back over to Carolyn. Oh, well, thank you so much, Diana. It's really so helpful to everyone. Um, wonderful tips and suggestions, and um, I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well, so thank you. And our next speaker is Caroline Edlin. Ms. Edlin is an oncology social worker, and she's our online support group program director at Cancer Care. And Ms. Edlin is going to address Cancer Care's free psychosocial programs and services and the role of support groups. It's my pleasure now to turn the program over to Ms. Edlin. Thank you, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be part of this call today. And I would like to start by speaking about the importance of creating a support network when you're diagnosed with multiple myeloma and how cancer care can be a part of that network. There are many ways that we can help. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization that provides free professional support services to anyone affected by cancer. Cancer Care programs include individual counseling, support groups, education about resources and how to navigate the healthcare system, practical help, and some limited financial assistance. All of our services are delivered by master's level oncology social workers and are completely free of charge. Oncology social workers are trained in how a diagnosis of cancer affects a person and his or her family and friends and are experienced in helping people to manage the emotional, physical, and financial challenges that arise after a diagnosis. Adjusting to and dealing with the diagnosis is an important part of the healing process. 
asking for help by joining a support group or by contacting a social worker for counseling is a sign of strength. Cancer Care offers face-to-face -face groups in our local offices in the New York City area, as well as telephone and online groups. In fact, we offer an online group specifically dedicated to the needs and experiences of people diagnosed with multiple myeloma. You can register on Cancer Care's website at www.cancercare.org. This group and our groups in general offer a unique opportunity to connect with other people impacted by cancer, along with the help of a Cancer Care social worker to facilitate the group. Sharing information and understanding with others in similar situations can be a powerful experience. Group members offer encouragement and a sense of community that can provide you with additional support and guidance. These connections help lessen the isolation that many people with cancer experience. As we've learned from today's program, there's a lot of information to digest and make sense of. Our social workers can help you understand what all of this means for you and your family. A cancer care social worker can help you prioritize and consider the questions that you might want to ask to get the answers and information you need. Please remember that you are not alone. Cancer care services are here to help. So please do contact us at 1-800-813-4673 or log on to our website at www.cancercare.org for more information about our oncology social work support. And thank you so much for your attention and the opportunity to speak today. Thank you so much, um, Ms. Evelyn. That was really excellent and lots of services that people can access from Cancer Care. And now we have lots of time for questions. I want to thank our speakers um, for making that possible. And so I'm going to ask Stephanie to bring all of our speakers on board. And also, um, we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. And if we don't get your questions at the very end, I'll give you um, places that you can contact to get your questions answered. But let's see how many we can take right now. And this is a great time to, to give us your questions because it's, it's just a wonderful chance to have these experts uh, respond to your questions. She'll then obviously take back to being healthcare team, but it'll be nice to get this opportunity today. So, um, so Stephanie? Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. If you would like to ask a question, please press star than one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. Again, please press star than one to ask a question. And we have a question from one of our online participants from Twain. Thoughts on international travel. What about injections for travel? Um, uh, let's see, uh, Dr. Rajay, do you want to take that question? Or, or both, both Dr. Rajay and Dr. So Donald? The question was on uh, international travel. Um, uh, uh, what about um, any injections, or I'm assuming maybe immunization yeah, for so travel? It depends on where they're traveling to and, you know, uh, what. Uh, needs to happen is uh, if there are certain restrictions on the area of travel, you need to take the appropriate precautions, get immunized, carry, you know, there are certain malaria bands, yellow fever bands, so really depending on where you travel. Uh, having said that, you know, in our practice at least we do uh, encourage travel. If you're feeling well enough to travel, you should absolutely um, avail of that. Uh, but uh, we would typically go to, there's always a travel website at um, wherever you're being treated, and that kind of gives you a guidance onto the country you're traveling to and what kind of immunizations and what kind of uh, prophylactic medications you need to be on. 
in general, when um, uh, folks are traveling abroad, we will tell people to carry in, um, an antibiotic pack, Z-pack, or something like that, um, so that if you end up with an infection while traveling, you have uh, uh, an antibiotic at hand. Thank you. And, and Dr. Um, Donald, do you want to add anything? Or? Uh, no, I think that that pretty much uh, sums it up. So, but thank you. Excellent. Okay. Um, and uh, that's a great question, and it actually talks to the effect of wanting to kind of normalize getting out of on quality of life during treatment and so travel. And what about traveling also within the – if it's not international, within the U.S.? So there are even – so we've often talked about sometimes traveling, going away on a weekend or something like that, and um, like bringing one's pills with them and getting refills and all of that. Um, uh, I wonder if Dr. Donald, you could address, address that issue as well, just in terms of just keeping, so you know, think, one's uh, Yeah, I think people have big concerns. In, certainly in Boston, we have a lot of patients who fly to Florida for the winters, being in confined airspaces um, and traveling. Inherently, there aren't any you know, travel restrictions within the U.S. that we specifically think of for myeloma patients. Um, it would not recommend the use of masks on an airplane. In fact, I think there are studies that show that once they become permeated within 20 minutes, they're not useful anyway. So I think it's just, you know, awareness of good hand hygiene, trying to avoid contact with, you know, things like bathrooms that you don't have to be in contact with. If there's a you know, sick patient or a sick person nearby, just trying to minimize your contact with that person. But in general, you know, travel does not need to be avoided um, as a medical patient, not within the U.S. Thank you. And another question um, from Damien. Um, so um, how, might, how long might one expect to have successful, successful control of myeloma after one starts um, their tumor map? Um, Dr. Um, Rache, if you could address that question. Sure. So, Damien, thank you for that question, and I'm going to try and address it in a more general fashion. So, uh, for our other listeners, daratumumab is a monoclonal antibody against uh, a protein CD38, which is present on all myeloma cells, and it was recently approved, uh, um, at least in the United States, for treatment uh, for myeloma. Um, as of right now, it's approved in a setting where uh, in patients who've kind of failed all of the currently available treatments. And we've seen really good response uh, rates with that as far as how long um, um, can the disease be controlled when you're on monoclonal antibody like daratumumab. It's very variable uh, with different uh, patients as is with any other treatment. But we've seen patients who've been on daratumumab for a long time as well. But it's really very... Um, uh, you know, uh, it pertains to a specific patient, so it's different. It's going to be different for different people. Um, thank you. And a question from one of our online participants, um, from John. Um, my wife begins Velcade next week and is fearful of side effects and the whole process. Any suggestions on how to help her prepare? So I'll ask all of our speakers to weigh in on that one. Dr. Roche, do you want to start? Or? Sure. So, um, well, Kate has been around for a long time now. It's more than uh, getting close to 13, 14 years that we've been using Belcade. Um, so your wife's uh, going to do really well on Belcade, John. Typically, uh, Belcade is now used as a subcutaneous shot, so given under the skin, typically in the belly 
or um, thighs, you rotate the area around. Uh, when you first get the Velcade um, injection, you can get discoloration at the site of the um, injection, and that's something we typically don't worry about because it fades away by the time uh, your no next dose is due. Most often we use Velcade now once a week. There are certain protocols which still use it twice a week. And the things to watch for with Velcade really are um, the neuropathy, which we talked about. It doesn't happen at the outset. It's a cumulative toxicity, so it happens when you've been on Velcade uh, for weeks to months. And um, that's something which you should keep an eye out um, uh, four, and that's typically, you know, tingling, numbness, any change in how your feet and your hands are feeling. Make sure that you report that to your nurses, to your doctors. It's important to do that so that we can modify the dose of that Velcade. In addition to that, you know, we do ask uh, you to supplement with a couple of things like uh, uh, certain B vitamins, which are good kind of nerve health vitamins, B6, B12. And the one thing we do know with a drug like Velcade is it can cause the reactivation of your chickenpox virus. So it can cause shingles. And so that if you're on a drug like Velcade, you should be on something to prevent uh, a reactivation of the shingles. So most patients are on either acyclovir or val acyclovir, which is a prophylactic antiviral medication to prevent reactivation of the shingles. And Dr. Tal, do you want to add anything? Or? That was a very comprehensive overview okay. <laughs> of the side effects, I think. But I think the encouraging things for your wife should just be that these are well-vetted drugs. They are very well-tolerated. Um, they're not associated with side effects like hair loss, nausea, vomiting. So, you know, there's good reason to be optimistic about how she'll tolerate this therapy. Thank you. And um, we have a question from one of our um, telephone participants, um, Stephanie. Our question comes from Carola D. Your line is open. Do you want to unmute your line, Carla? Oh, sorry. Hi. <laughs> Oh, apologies. Um, I, my question is about how long do you recommend um, between having dental work like extractions or bridges or even implant to starting Zumeda? All right. Carla, that's a really good question. So, um, you know, what we recommend in people who've had an implant is at least three months uh, away from being on a drug like uh, zoledronic acid or Zometa. Uh, so typically prior to your implants, you would have been off of it for about three months and then three additional months. There are situations, though, where the bone disease can, in fact, be a lot, uh, uh, you know, maybe getting out of hand, and that's a discussion to have with your treating physician, and you have to weigh the risks and the benefits of actually taking the bone uh, targeted agent like the zoledronic acid versus waiting, but typically three months would be a good window. And we have a question, actually, from one of our online participants, participants um, for Diane Bearden. Um, so, um, how can I cope with loss of taste? Uh, Ms. Bearden, if you could address that the question. That's a great question. Um, absolutely. And loss of taste um, can come from a, a from medication side effects, um, and 
you know, oftentimes when we, when we talk with a patient is, are you absolutely not having any taste? Are you having a taste that's um, lingering in your mouth? Or are certain foods tasting more salty or more sweet than they, than they typically do? And so um, it, the plan can, is very individualized based on what you're experiencing, but um, it may um, result in uh, maybe bringing in some tart foods, um, maybe rinsing your mouth with a baking soda and water wash to kind of reset, um, reset your taste in your mouth, um, practicing good dental hygiene, um, brushing your teeth regularly, staying hydrated, um, all have an impact on our taste. And so um, just reach out to um, your healthcare team, your dietitian, and talk with them about what you're experiencing, and they can help formulate an individual plan for you. Excellent. Thank you. And I actually want to go back to a question that we actually did come up about um, someone starting treatment and just the anxieties about starting a new treatment. And I wonder if, Caroline, if you could just address kind of the role of sometimes people either getting some individual support or counseling in addition to talk to their healthcare team in terms of just getting some validation of how to prepare and just how to, um, you know, kind of questions to ask and things like that so that they can feel the kind of confidence that um, Dr. Rajay was able to um, provide this, uh, this questioner, but there are many people on the call who perhaps have some concerns about either starting a new treatment, continuing on treatment, and just what groups can often do for people in terms of talking about these concerns, in addition Absolutely. to talking to their healthcare team, of course. Sure. Uh, support groups are, are a wonderful way to connect with other people who can oftentimes relate to some of those experiences, those feelings. And, um, and there's a lot of, of comfort, I think, and empowerment in joining a community of other people who relate to this and, to, and relate to what you're going through. Um, and, and that's around getting emotional support for um, what's coming up. That's also around, uh, as Carolyn mentioned, um, you know, planning on, on specific questions to ask uh, your medical team or um, ways to get your needs met. Um, and in, in our support groups, each, each is led by an oncology social worker. Uh, resources are given out. And when we're hearing about needs um, that are not getting met, perhaps by the medical team or, or elsewhere, um, you know, we, we, we are there to provide ideas about other, other services and resources in the community that, um, that people might want to reach out to. So I think, I think being in a support group, it's, it's a wonderful way to get connected with that support and that community. Um, I think it can be very enriching for the participants. We have the last question, um, actually, from one of our online participants, really, um, uh, from um, Eleanor. Um, is my kidney function being affected, or can my kidney function be affected? And I'm going to ask Dr. Rajay and Dr. Donald if you could address that question. Um, is that it? Um, is, I'm sorry, is my kidney function being what? Affected by my treatments, or can it by the, by the uh, multi-myeloma or by treatment, and, um, and how should I deal with that is the question. Sure. So I can speak to that on Newport Can. So, you know, kidney disease is a very prominent feature of multiple myeloma. Many patients present with kidney dysfunction. When we think about what the kidney dysfunction is, it's, it's really not that the kidneys themselves are inherently damaged, but these proteins, these immunoglobulins that are in the blood are, are clogging our kidneys, which are really just filters. So as you treat the disease, and you use the medicines such as Velcade and uh, lenalidomide to treat the disease, the kidneys can open up and you can see improvement um, 
in kidney function as you go through therapy. We're very careful in our selection of treatments um, that we choose medicines that are easy on the kidneys, understanding the importance of the myeloma kidney. There are certainly things that you can do um, as patients to kind of help your kidneys through this process, as you will. I generally recommend that patients drink three liters of fluids every day, uh, helping to flush that filter and move that protein through. Medicines such as the non-steroids like Advil, Motrin, um, Naproxen should be avoided. These are medicines that can be toxic to the kidneys. It's important if you do have kidney dysfunction that your medicine list is reviewed to ensure that the medicines are adjusted, the doses are adjusted for your level of kidney function. Um, so I think, you know, the kidneys are probably arguably one of the most important organs that, that we manage in the treatment of myeloma and have to be done so uh, carefully, but our treatments generally improve kidney function. Wow, this has been an amazing call. I want to thank our speakers. You've just been incredible in addressing, um, also in your presentations, but also addressing these really great questions. And I want to thank our participants for asking such great questions that enable our speakers to further address your questions. So I want to thank, thank you all very much. Um, and I also want to remind you this is a one-hour workshop and that in planning a program like this, we do recognize that you all have many needs that go far beyond the scope of one hour. And so I, had, I know there are some questions that we have not gotten to, so I first want to give you some help in terms of how to get those questions answered. So um, for those of you who actually have any medical questions regarding your um, treatment for multiple myeloma or treatment managing the side effects of multiple myeloma, I really do recommend that you contact the National Cancer Institute. Their information specialists are often, at, at the end of our calls, they're waiting to take your call, to expect calls from you. So their number is 1-800-422-6237. Again, 1-800-422-6237. And of course, this is in addition to asking your questions, to healthcare team as well, but you may want to get, some of you may be comfortable just calling the, the National Cancer Institute initially just to get some additional information and then bringing that to your healthcare team and asking the questions, of course, because they know you, of course, the best in terms of uh, your specific situations. And for those of you who would like to access services from Cancer Care, whether it be our counseling services, um, a chance to talk with one of our oncology social workers, join the support group, whether it be on the telephone or online, or actually um, get some practical or financial assistance from Cancer Care. Um, we also have a transportation grant for people who are actually uh, living with multiple myeloma who need to get back and forth to appointments. And so there's a lot of services that we offer here at Cancer Care um, that might be of help to many of you on the call today. So then I would suggest that you contact Cancer Care directly at 1-800-813-4673 or you may visit our website at www.cancercare.org and you can pose a question which will take you to one of our social workers as well. But most importantly, as we are about to conclude today's program, I would not want any of you to think that you are alone in coping with um, multi-myeloma, with cancer in general, with any side effects that you're coping with, I want you to now know that you're part of the cancer care community and that as such, we are here to help you. And we are here um, to help you um, and we have simply a telephone call away or um, a mouse click away on your computer. Um, so I want to thank you all for your participation on this program today. I want to wish you all a very fine day and thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect and everyone have a wonderful day.